Freedom Hut. Vice President of the United States Mike Pence visits the Freedom Hut. Sleepy Joe stays awake for a night. Postal conspiracy lost in the mail. And how anti-racism is a Marxist cult. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters. With actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here. Big show today. I I like to think they're all big shows, but today in particular because we are joined by the vice president, Mike Pence. He's going to be talking to us about what we've seen with the DNC, what we should expect for the RNC. Exclusive interview. Check it out here. That's how we roll. That's how we do things. So looking forward to bringing that to you in just a few moments. But first, I I was watching last night some of the DNC, some of it. I I can't tell you that I would watch every minute of it. It's just too painful. It's too boring. I I don't know why anybody thinks that this is uh, compelling visual entertainment of of any kind. But I saw Biden's speech. And and here's what I'll say about it. Unlike unlike the libs out there, the speech was it was fine. But, you know, the bar, you see, the, the libs will tell you that anything Trump says is horrible. Everything he does is Hitler. Everything he does is orange man bad. Look, the Biden speech was fine. doesn't really matter. It was I disagree with it. We're going to pull it apart. But I mean, I'm talking about the cognitive questions, the delivery of it. Yeah, fine. Biden didn't wander on stage last night without his pants on, you know, with his suspenders uh, dangling down by his sides. Well, I guess that couldn't happen without pants. But you know what I'm saying? Without his pants on, saying he needs to go feed his friend Mert the squirrel, you know? Okay, great. He didn't do that. But... The speech was just a speech, man. He's reading off a prompter. Who cares? Doesn't really matter. Doesn't make a difference. Uh, of course, the, the media apparatus leaped into it right away. Right away. Um, here's fake Tapper making sure he's carrying as much water as he can for the deal. He's just a journalist, guys. He doesn't have opinions. He, he, he's not actually a pundit pretending to be a journalist. Sure, fake. Whatever you say. But here he is. This, this is all you have to hear from all of them. It was like the best speech anyone's ever given in history, according to the fake news. Play two. He said President Trump failed at his number one responsibility, which is protecting the American people. And he said that was unforgivable. I've heard Joe Biden give, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of speeches over the years. I have to say this was one of the best, if not the best performance I've ever seen. Also kind of underlining a mistake, a tactical mistake by the Trump campaign to set expectations so low, uh, suggesting that Joe Biden was not capable of giving a speech like this, uh, meant that he would naturally exceed expectations. I mean, yeah, okay, so he didn't wander out on stage muttering nonsense. No one really thought he was going to do that in a speech that he's reading. The muttering, see, this is a, this is a perfect example of the media manipulation we don't expect that Biden, when he's reading something off of a prompter, is going to start talking about corn pop. And, you know, there I was and my legs and the blonde hair. And, you know, where am I? No, he's reading off a prompter. That's fine. We expect that he can read. Uh, what we don't expect is Biden to be able to handle the rigors of the job. And when he's unscripted, be in a place where we can trust that he won't get foggy. So. 
you know, Sleepy Joe stayed awake for the night. Great. Ooh, we're all supposed to forget everything that that we know about him. And this speech will be forgotten in, in a week. But there are some very important parts of it that I wanted to get to. There are some aspects of the Biden speech that tell you a lot about where the Democrat Party is right now. Not one word I did not hear in certainly in the Biden speech. But nothing this week in condemnation of riots, looting and surging violence in major American cities. Nothing about the rioters in Portland condemning them, saying they're not representative of our movement. Nothing about the widespread destruction of predominantly black neighborhoods in places like Minneapolis. Nothing about it at all. It's like it's not happening. In that sense, the DNC is a big gaslighting parade. That's what was going on. We know that this is a major issue across the country. We know that these protests rage on in different cities. I had to wake up after the purge night here in New York and see destroyed stores all over downtown. Chicago, as of last week, had organized mass looting going on, all in the name of BLM, by the way. Not a word about that. No, the Democrats pretend it's all about justice, you see. Ah, isn't that isn't that so convenient? Play clip 11. One of the most powerful voices we hear in the country today is from our young people. They're speaking to the inequity and injustice that has grown up in America. Economic injustice, racial injustice, environmental injustice. I hear their voices. If you listen, you can hear them, too. And whether it's the existential existential threat posed by climate change, the daily fear of being gunned down in school or the inability to get started in your first job, it will be the work of the next president to restore the promise of America to everyone. Talks about the protesters and just refers to them as though they're the new civil rights movement. Meanwhile, they attack people. They've killed people. They burn down businesses. They terrify private citizens outside their homes. They march out into the suburbs now in Portland like a pack of maniacs. These are all Democrats doing this. These are all Biden voters that are engaged in the outward bad because of the whole coronavirus thing. But as we know, no one needs social social distancing when they have social justice. It's all that's all that we have to hear. That's all that we have to be told. And then we we are supposed to let it go. Um, Biden said that he heard the voice of the protesters. But what about the voices of the people who want police on their streets? The people who want to feel safe as they walk to work or as they go to the store. Do they count? What about the 81 percent, according to Gallup, of black Americans who unsurprisingly want the same amount of police in their neighborhoods or more? Eight out of ten. Do we hear from them at all on this? No, of course not. Democrats create agitation like the Marxist community organizers that they are. You see, when when you start to and this will be a a major theme today, I want to return to this. When you see their complaints, you understand there can be no end to these complaints. They talk about things like environmental justice. Their claim about justice is that everyone everyone must be the same. If there's any difference 
particularly between groups. But if there are differences out there, that must be an injustice. I would think of justice as each getting his due under the law. That that is justice, right? Each getting what is due to that individual, not everybody gets whatever the revolutionary committee that has seized power decides they should get. That's communism. So when they talk about injustice, I always want to ask the question or, or force them to answer. Are all the differences in outcomes between people the result of some insidious system that is either racist or sexist or in some way oppressive? Or do we just live in a society like all societies throughout history where individuals at all levels make choices and decisions and sometimes get lucky and sometimes get unlucky? And there are going to be different outcomes that happen for people. Is that possible? We'll return to this. But you see, the way they've structured the national conversation and they talk about equity now, you know, social equity, uh, the way they've structured this, there's nothing but envy that can come from political conversation. Right? Some will always have more than others. And so there's an endless opening for people to be exploited because, look, I, I wish I were richer. I wish I were handsomer. I wish I were smarter. Hey, you know, name something. You always you always wish that you were in a better position. I certainly do. There's lots of things that I would I would change if I could. But I make the best decisions I can. I try to be responsible and ethical and work within the laws that we are all supposed to live under. And at the end of the day, all that really matters is what you know about yourself as a person. Do you have honor, integrity and decency? Do you treat people with kindness? Everything else is just you know, numbers on a page or photos on an Instagram. I mean, who cares, right? Doesn't really matter. But the way the Democrats position things, if you only give them more power, they will fix all of these things. And they're increasingly explicit about this. Well, we should all know that if you take the Democrat Party at its word now, they would have to have totalitarian levels of authority in order to try to make everything equitable. What, what is equity? What, is that, what would that mean in practice? Is it when every household has every uh, household per capita broken down by racial categorization, which I think categor uh, categorizing us by race is inherently divisive, unhelpful and really doesn't tell us anything. But they they like to, the Democrats like to do this. They like the uh, the identity politics of the left to be their really their primary approach now to American life. So do we all have to have the same per capita income or if one group is a little bit ahead of another group in per capita income? Do we how do we address that? What are we supposed to do? Oh, fund more nonprofits that are supposed to make racism go away by telling people that because of if you are white in this country right now, the left will tell you that you have sins to atone for, not based on anything you've done, but because of how you were born. That is both immoral and illogical. But that is a fundamental position of the Democrat Party today. They, they truly believe that. That is what white privilege theory is. That is what all of this expansion of the definition of white supremacy to include, uh, you know, why suburban school districts do better in general than urban school districts. Right. Everything is white supremacy. Everything. This is central to the Democrat Party. So they pretend that this, this is the great cognitive dissonance that you have to get through from this dnc speech last night from biden he's supposed to be warm 
inviting, friendly. That's the whole thing was, I'm just Joe Biden, America. I'm just here. I just want to hold you all together. And meanwhile, his entire party is saying, bow down, peasant, and apologize for your white privilege. And don't make any complaints about us saying that the science means that you have no rights anymore because of this pandemic. That's what his party's actually doing. What he's presenting last night is a fiction. Joe Biden, as presented in the DNC last night, is a fictional character. That man doesn't really exist. That's just what the speechwriters, the poll-tested consultants came up with to package somebody who's been a machine politician, the Democrat Party from Delaware, for longer than I've been alive. And nobody thought he was impressive. No one thought he had great leadership until about five minutes ago. They're trying to fool you. They're trying to pull off a con, a fraud against America. And Joe Biden is the con man in chief. That's what's actually happening. When he talks about what he's going to do, when he gets into the specifics, you say, well, how would you do that? What would that really mean? A lot of boilerplate pablum about the need for this, the need for that. What are the things that Joe Biden's really going to do that will change your life? He's going to take more money from people who are working hard for it. He's going to put more bureaucrats in charge of even more of your life than they already are. And he is going to unleash the social justice left from the top of the federal government all the way down to the classrooms and corporations on the rest of America. And we have to live with this insanity. And it has become a religious belief for them. If you try to engage, if you try to defy them, They don't want to convince you. They just want to destroy you because they have the power now, you see. Culturally, economically. The radical Marxist left through the lens of social justice and identity politics is entirely ascendant. And the Democrats, in an effort to put them more officially in power with Joe Biden, pretend that this is a phenomenon that is not even occurring. Oh, it's absolutely occurring. This is now... This is now the center of this is the command center of the Democrat Party. Separate us by race, agitate endlessly and allow the elites of the Democrat Party to continue to get their their fantastic returns by investing in these corporations that have now allowed uh, that have now been allowed to effectively destroy small business competitors all across America with these lockdowns. The consolidation of wealth now in the mega corporations controlled by overwhelmingly liberals, Google, Amazon, Facebook. The consolidation of wealth is something that we are going to be living with and haunted by for decades to come because of all the power that that now wields within our society. What we can buy, what we can see, how we communicate. They're seizing control of everything around you. And we think what? If only only we can have a a little bit more Republican outreach to their side, this will go away. There is only one path forward, friends, and it is it is victory. Prevent them from seizing power or else we will all pay the price. I wish I could tell you something more inspirational today, but Joe Biden's speech last night was just a reminder of how much they are willing to lie to you, how much they are willing to misrepresent what they really stand for just long enough to officially be in power. And then it's too late for all the rest of us. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Will we be the generation that finally wipes out the stain of racism from our national character? I believe we're up to it. I believe we're ready. Just a week ago yesterday was the third anniversary of the events in Charlottesville. Close your eyes. Remember what you saw on television. Remember seeing those neo-Nazis and Klansmen and white supremacists coming out of fields with lighted torches, veins bulging, spewing the same same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. Remember the violent clash that ensued between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And remember what the president said when asked? He said there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. It was a wake-up call for us as a country, and for me, a call to action. At that moment, I knew I'd have to run. The worst lie that the Democrats tell, the worst lie that they tell is that Trump said, There were very fine people on both sides referring to the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. That is a lie. And if we had anything even approaching an honest press, they would denounce as liars anyone who says it. But the Democrats love it. The Democrats, all they've had to do is convince enough, particularly of black America, of that lie. And it's impossible for there to be any Republican outreach. It's impossible for Trump to make any gains within the black community based upon policy, based upon making people's lives better. He's a racist. So that's all that you'll be told. He's a racist because of Charlottesville. It is a lie. There is no room for debate here. It is a factual lie. Joe Biden said there are very fine people on both sides. He said it. I could walk around doing that. Joe Biden said there are very fine people on both sides. Oh, but Buck, he said it quoting someone else who said it. Right. Intent of words matters. President Trump clarified that he was talking about people on both sides of the 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 statue debate. He said it within 30 seconds of the previous statement. He was making sure everybody was very clear on what he was saying. But they lie about him. Joe Biden is a liar, folks. He is a practice liar and has been for decades. And he lies about big things. To slander the sitting president like that is a question of honor, and Joe Biden has none. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're now joined by the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence. Mr. Vice President, thank you so much, sir. Buck, it's great to be back on the Buck Sexton Show. So, uh, Mr. Vice President, I want to ask, what is your overall assessment of what you've seen. I know we've got the RNC coming up. So the Republicans and certainly the Trump Pence ticket will get a, an opportunity to make their case. But what would you want people to take away from what you've seen this week at the DNC? Well, Buck, I, I'd be honest with you. I haven't watched a whole lot of it. The president and I have been actually doing a fair amount of travel this week. The president, unlike the Democrats, <laughs> the president was in Wisconsin Monday. Uh, I was in Wisconsin yesterday. And uh, we were carrying the message of uh, all the progress we made in our first three years, all this president's leadership throughout this coronavirus pandemic. But from what I've seen, uh, it does seem to be a convention that has confirmed everything that uh, we've been saying all along, that, uh, that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have been overtaken by the radical left. And, and we've seen one speech after another that... While when they're not attacking the president, uh, we see people like uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders articulating 
the kind of left-wing liberal policies that are far out of the mainstream of this country. And uh, I'm just counting the days for when uh, the Republican National Convention starts next week and and we can lay out uh, the contrast. I mean, in, in Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, and the radical left, you've got you've got uh, a group that wants uh, higher taxes, uh, socialized medicine, open borders, abortion on demand, and wants to cut funding to law enforcement at a time of rising violence in our streets. And President Trump and our entire administration, we've got a record of uh, of, of less taxes, free market solutions, standing up for life and liberty and standing without apology for law enforcement. So I, I, I'm excited about next week, but the the uh, the overall tone and, and tenor of the Democrat National Convention just has confirmed to us the uh, the, uh, the 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 liberal leftward turn uh, of the Democratic Party, and uh, and I just I just know uh, that uh, when it comes to November third, we're going to win four more years for President Donald Trump in the White House. Mr. Vice President, that's a perfect transition. I want to ask you about what the promise will be for those four more years. There, there's been some questions out there of people saying, well, we know and everything that you just brought up, the left uh, runs the Democrat Party now. The Democrat Party has gone in this radical direction. And so friends of mine would say this is a an easy decision from that perspective. But to win over those swing state voters and the undecideds, they're going to want to hear what the vision is for the next four years. Now, I know you've got a few days to do that, but what would be the the precy, the elevator pitch version for Trump Pence for the next four years? I think it's promises made, promises kept, but we're just getting started. But is that short enough for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you know, so we're going to see what the, are we going to have the completion of the wall? Are we going to have more tax cuts? Are we going to have? Yeah, well, look, we've got we got about three hundred miles of wall already built, and we got Mexico doing more to secure our southern border and theirs than ever before. Uh, this economy is going to come roaring back under this president. We've all, already advanced a payroll tax cut for the American people and to build on the historic tax cuts and tax relief this president advanced. I mean, think about this for a second, and, and, and all of your listeners should reflect on this. In the middle of a global pandemic, where over the last three months we actually are seeing the American economy coming back, nine million jobs added back to the economy in three months alone. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to raise taxes by $4 trillion. They want to pass a $2 trillion version of the Green New Deal. They want to, they want to bury this economy under regulation with the goal of abolishing fossil fuel, driving up the cost of energy. I mean, in President Donald Trump, we're not just going to bring this economy all the way back. We're going to bring it all the way back, and then some. The president and I are absolutely convinced as we continue our steady policy of less taxes, less regulation, uh, more American energy, and more trade deals that put American jobs and American workers first, we're going to take this economy to all new heights. We'll focus. We're going to continue to fo- till we have a vaccine. We're going to focus uh, on every resource uh, to to put this coronavirus in the past. But the American people are opening up again. We're opening up our economy again. We're opening up our schools again. And I think they know come November 3rd that uh, the president who has the vision, the policy, and the agenda to bring us all the way back and reach all new heights is President Donald Trump. We're speaking to Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence. 
And Mr. Vice President, on the COVID response issue, you've been uh, running that coordination task force, coordinating that task force, uh, trying to make sure that we have the most robust policies in place to to limit uh, the the horrific toll of this disease. Weeks ago, there was a clear panic that was being driven in the media, suggesting that we were entering the worst phase. It seems to have quieted down a bit now, and I'm looking at the numbers state by state, and there is some cause for optimism here. Can you just speak to that? What are, what are you seeing right now? How are we doing nationwide as of you know late August in this fight against COVID? Well, Buck, it is, uh, it is encouraging to see that the latest outbreak across the Sun Belt is beginning to recede and in many states is beginning to decline dramatically. Now, we, we, don't, we don't in any way diminish the loss of more than 170,000 Americans. Our, our prayers are with any family within the sound of my voice uh, who's lost a loved one. But I'm, I'm absolutely convinced uh, that because the American people have been putting the health of their neighbors first, we're, um, we're each and every day one day closer to putting this coronavirus uh, in the past. But make no mistake about it, on, on this issue, and we've heard, we've heard a lot about it, Buck, haven't we, at the Democratic National Convention. The thing that they don't mention to you is that, um, that even before there was a single case of coronavirus community spread in this country, President Donald Trump took the unprecedented step to shut down all travel from China, the second largest economy in the world. He stood up the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Before the end of the first week of February, we already began the research to develop a vaccine. And we we all believe that we'll likely have a coronavirus vaccine for the American people before the end of this year. The president reinvented testing from a standing start in February uh, where we'd done less than 10,000 tests. We now have done more than 70 million tests, 800,000 tests a day. And when it comes to supplies, I just had a White House task force meeting today, Buck. We have no outstanding requests from any state anywhere in the country for PPE, ventilators, or any of the critical supplies that our wonderful doctors and nurses need. We've, we've seen to the delivery of hundreds of millions of masks and gloves and gowns and all of those things to make sure that people across this country have the health care and our health care workers have the support that they need. It's not just been a whole of government response. It's been a whole of America response. Um, and I, I just couldn't be more proud uh, of the leadership that President Trump has brought to this. Again, we, we, we mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. And, but I'm absolutely convinced had the president not taken the strong steps he took early on, uh, to shut down all travel from China, a step that was criticized by Joe Biden. And Joe Biden called it xenophobic, which is a fancy word for racism. He said the president was wrong to shut down all travel to China. And Nancy Pelosi, of course, was in Chinatown in San Francisco at the end of February telling people that they should be out on the streets and celebrating. At that point, we were already beginning to develop a vaccine. We were already well into the work of, of shutting down travel from other countries, standing up our national response. But I, I must tell you that um, I really believe the strong, decisive leadership of President Donald Trump saved lives and gave us the time and the opportunity to stand up an unprecedented national response. And so uh, uh, we'll, we'll take that case to the American people. 
in part next week, but all the way through to November 3rd. And I think when they look at the record of the first three years, an economy that created more than 7 million jobs, 200 conservatives to our federal courts, we rebuilt our military. And then you combine that with the strong leadership President Trump provided throughout this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I, I know the American people know leadership when they see it, and they're going to vote for four more years for President Donald Trump. Mr. Vice President, the lockdowns continue in some places. I'm here in New York City, and we are now being told that there is no no definitive end in sight for our lockdown for at least indoor dining and for some, some other aspects of daily life that have been taken from us now for many, many months continuously. Are, are you concerned that there is a replacement of science with politics here to perpetuate these lockdowns up until the election as a means of depressing and upsetting the American people and then just hoping that there'll be a change vote? You know, I never try and speculate on, on motivations. I've worked with governors in both political parties uh, over the last seven months. And uh, I, I must tell you that, um, you know, our hearts go out to the people of New York. Literally one in five fatalities in this country were in the state of New York. And frankly, that was a result in part of decisions that the governor made and the mayor of New York City made. Um, they, were, they were slow to respond, slow to act. But it is encouraging to see in places all across the country that we are opening up again. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We've literally seen more jobs added back to this economy in three months than Barack Obama and Joe Biden saw added to the economy in eight years. Now, we have a ways to go because at the top of the pandemic, we'd lost 22 million American jobs. But we're going to continue to work with states, give them the very best information that we can, uh, New York has been low and steady for some time. We'll continue to give them the very best counsel, uh, but we'll also continue to drive forward to open up our economy. And, and opening up our schools, Buck, is a really big part of opening this economy up. You know, my wife's a school teacher. Uh, she'll be going back to school on, on uh, next Wednesday. She teaches art at an elementary school in the Washington area. And uh, we just also recognize for the sake of our kids, for the sake of working families, we've got to open up our schools again, too. And we'll keep driving for that in every state, including <laughs> including yours. And, Mr. Vice President, before we let you get back to uh, that campaign and hopefully getting those four more years, just want to ask you to weigh in on the law and order issue. Operation Legend has racked up a number of, of arrests, uh, important arrests of, of violent criminals in the last week. Uh, there is a continuing divide between the Republican and Democrat rep uh, approach on this issue that seems to have been really clarified in the last few months when it comes to who supports police and who supports this anti-cop, almost anarchy. What is the administration doing right now, and, and what do you want people to know about the choice they face on the issue of law and order? Buck, it's such an important issue, and I must tell you that I am uh, I'm shocked that no speaker at the Democrat National Convention has spoken about the violence in our streets, in our major cities. I mean, it, re it really is remarkable when you see Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York City, uh, literally at times in flames uh, with, uh, you know, with violent uprisings, with violence against, uh, against citizens, against law enforcement officers, and not a word. Uh, other than vague references to peaceful protests, has, has been uttered, to my knowledge, by by any of the major speakers at the Democratic 
national convention. And look, what, what President Trump and I are determined to do is to stand by the men and women of law enforcement at every level, to make sure that they have the resources uh, to, to, um, to bring safety to our streets, but also to improve public safety. We're committed to that. You know, in, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the president signed an executive order, and he said, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to provide new resources for law enforcement. We're not going to defund the police, not now, not ever. We're gonna, rather, we're going to fund them for more resources, more training to improve public safety. And at the same time, we're also going to look for ways to continue to improve the lives of our African-American neighbors in our cities in all of our minority communities and all of our families that live in, in urban centers around the country. I mean, this president in our first three years had the lowest unemployment ever recorded for African-Americans, the highest uh, investment in history in historically black colleges and universities. Senator Tim Scott uh, authored a bill the president signed to create 8,000 opportunity zones that have generated billions of investments creating jobs in our inner city for our minority communities. I mean, the, the choice the Democrats would would offer with Joe Biden and others seem to suggest we got to make a choice between supporting law enforcement and supporting our African-American community or their, uh, our other minorities. The, the truth is we have done both. We'll continue to do both. And I believe uh, as this president stands with law enforcement and stands for for public safety and law and order for every American, regardless of race or creed or color, uh, that we're going to win four more years for President Donald Trump in the White House. Mr. Vice President, thank you so much for your time, sir. Good luck to you, and we appreciate all you do. Thanks, Buck. Great to be back on the Buck Sexton Show. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. But he spent the last half century in Washington selling out our country and ripping off our jobs and letting other countries steal our jobs. Mexico, China, all of them just stealing our jobs. He's been there for 47 years and now he's going to come in and make a change. I don't think so. His son walked out with one point five billion dollars to manage. That's millions of dollars a year. And the son didn't even have a job. They had Hunter Biden speak last night. I, it's amazing. The brazenness of it. There, there is something that Democrats really enjoy about uh, doing things that they know to be untrue and disgusting and doing them as openly as possible and going, what? Well, what, what's wrong with that? Oh, I don't see anything wrong with that. Just to really try to agitate, just to really troll anybody with any sense, you know, any, any ability to reason. But that's the, the problem. There are so many that I have with Biden. Uh, this is a guy who has been in public life for decades, but really he's just been in the business of getting Joe Biden reelected to the Senate. What does he have to do to get reelected to the Senate? And so then he can be president of the United States. Look, this guy is just he's objectively kind of a loser and always has been. But people want to believe now that he's the person that we should entrust the future of the country to, it is nonsensical. And it's not like he's some big corrective even to Trump, even if you don't like Trump, right? Which I know most of you do, but Joe Biden's not the answer no matter Thanks who's for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
A major theme of Biden's stream of lies last night was that we are the worst in the world. America is the worst in the world when it comes to covid response. That's just not true. Uh, But before we go to that, I also want to note that for some leftists, notably one commentator at CNN, uh, the problem was that the protesters on the streets who should be at this point, uh, at least in some way, the ones that are violent, the ones that are destroying stuff, should be condemned. The protesters on the streets uh, didn't see enough of what they needed. Play clip one. He has to have plans for criminal justice reform. He has to have plans for police reform. He can't be afraid of it because there might be an endorsement from a police union. It was such a good, powerful moment, but it was lacking on the substance that these young folks who have been in the streets all summer so desperately need to see from Joe Biden. And it shouldn't just fall on Kamala. That's the truth. If he says he supports justice and policing, I wanted to hear him say tonight, one of the first things I will do in my first 30 days after being sworn in is address police reform by signing justice and policing. Right. I mean, it's just it doesn't have to be a heavy lift, but I just wanted a little more heft there. Justice in policing. This is this tells you a lot about where the Democrat Party is right now at a time when people are increasingly worried in major cities about just being out on the street, particularly at night, and you've seen major spikes in violence, major spikes in shootings, the answer is uh, more bail, more bail reform, more uh, hamstringing the police, more limiting the ability of law enforcement to actually punish people who do. But this is the thing. Democrats... Every time their policies fail because of their mentality, because of the blinders they have and the absolutism that is at the heart of their ideology, right? the need to control, the need to be in, in, in control of other people, whenever what they do fails, the answer has to be more of that thing. Right? What's the problem with schools? We need more government spending. We've already been spending so much more money on schools in recent years than we did before. More spending has to be more, right? We're seeing defund the police and undermining cops having negative consequences. What's what's the answer to that? More defunding of police, more more undermining our law enforcement apparatus, as if that's a good idea. You know, just remember this. The mayor of Chicago has shown everybody she's fine with protesters out on the street. She's fine with with all the stuff that you're seeing for the, the BLM movement. Doesn't really approve of at least publicly doesn't approve of the looting. Um, But she doesn't want protesters on her block. That's noisy and annoying. So they're banned. They're not allowed to protest at her taxpayer funded house. That's not allowed. That's too much. That's a safety issue. This is the classic, the classic lib game they play. You can't have firearms to defend yourself, but the fancy libs, they may not have firearms themselves because guns are icky. But they want armed security that's trained to protect them all the time. They get to feel safe all the time. You don't. Because your safety, that's a price that has to be paid so that we have equity in the criminal justice system. That's what they'll tell you. That's what the claim will be. And speaking of somebody that really doesn't want you to have guns but always has private security on hand for himself, Mike Bloomberg. He spoke last night. Here's what little little mini Mike Bloomberg had to say. He was very... You know, uh, gosh, these, everyone here is so poor. Uh, play eight. I'm not asking you to vote against Donald Trump because he's a bad guy. 
I'm urging you to vote against him because he's done a bad job. Today, unemployment is at historic highs, and small businesses are struggling just to survive. It didn't have to be this way. Before I ran for mayor, I spent 20 years running a business I started from scratch. So I want to ask small business owners and their employees one question, and it's a question for everyone. Would you rehire or work for someone who ran your business into the ground? and who always does what's best for him or her, even when it hurts the company, and whose reckless decisions put you in danger, and who spends more time tweeting than working? If the answer is no, why the hell would we ever rehire Donald Trump for another four years? Let me just say this about Bloomberg. Mayor Bloomberg, the biggest problem Bloomberg has when it comes to Trump is uh, jealousy. Bloomberg wanted to be president. Bloomberg thinks, well, I made and Bloomberg is self-made and financially Trump is not the fact. Okay, we do deal in facts here. And he looks at Trump and he thinks, why is this guy, you know, how how has he become? I I started Bloomberg, uh, you know, the the corporation and I'm worth I don't know what it is now. Fifty billion dollars, 60 billion dollars. Why is Donald Trump a bigger deal than I am? That's really part. That's really the thinking here. So it's very personal. With a lot of Trump's critics, you have to separate out immediately those who are just honestly jealous of the guy. There's a lot of jealousy when it comes to Donald Trump. And some of you might be saying, Buck, we're going to keep it real. Yeah, Trump is a thin-skinned guy. That's, that is a valid criticism of him. We deal in reality here. But there are also a lot of people who are just obsessed with how much they don't, uh, they, they can't deal with Trump being more prominent than them, more powerful. I mean, Bloomberg falls in that category because Bloomberg knows enough about business and knows enough about how to make a profit that putting Biden in charge is just stupid. Biden doesn't know anything. Biden doesn't have ideas. But here's what you do get with Biden. Somebody who will do what the Democrat apparatus tells him to do. And perhaps that's enough. Perhaps that's the whole the whole game. That's everything that is needed. And I think that's the plan that they have. That and also to tell people that this is about stopping fascism. AOC. I, you know, anytime a Democrat wants to tell you that, you know, Republicans and Donald Trump are so dumb. Just remember that AOC to any person paying attention is is clearly not very bright. I don't mean that in a mean way. It is a mean thing to say, but she's a prominent public figure who is pushing for ideas that will harm a lot of us, will make our lives crappier. AOC is not very bright. She is very powerful. She's a big polit- you know, a big name, I should say, in, in the Congress. And has a huge social media following. But, you know, it's really the kind of rise of the young, stupid leftist through politics. And they have a lot of support. A lot of people on social media who've never read a book who are like, yeah, AOC is amazing. She's still out there telling everybody that this is about. You can't make this up. Stopping fascism. That's what this election is really all about. Play six. Um, I think it's really important for us to kind of talk about the deeper issues about this election, because let's keep it real, right? Like, we need to win in November. November is about, in my opinion, stopping fascism in the United States, um, and that that is what Donald Trump represents. Donald Trump represents fascism, she says, and kind of giggles about it. Now, that's not new. We've heard this for four years. 
in what way does Donald Trump represent fascism? Uh, I think fascism is the previous political party that had control of the White House using the national security apparatus to spy on and try to destroy the incoming administration because they were such sore losers, such a bunch of whiny little crybabies. That's Democrat. Hillary did when Hillary's a horrible person. Can we stop this? No one thinks Hillary's a good person. Hillary is ruthless and craven and not impressive. Failed the bar exam on the first try. Miss, I went to Yale Law School. Buck is not impressed. Not impressive. You know, stood, stood by her husband. Yes, because she's rapacious and greedy and has a lust for power and had a famous last name because her husband kind of, you know, stumbled into the presidency and the media propped him up. They're all still bitter about the great years of Reaganism. God, I miss the 80s. And yes, I do remember them. A little bit. You know? Trump is a fascist how? You ask your friends this question, or I don't know if you're friends with anybody who thinks that, but you ask people that bring this up. Explain why he's a fascist. I have to walk around now in New York City with people looking at me like I'm crazy because I'm not... Wearing a porous cloth over my mouth outdoors. Does anybody really think does anybody really think that this is one a risk to me and two that this this makes a difference? This is this is crazy. I mean, you know, this is basic biochemistry, really, when you think about it, the air is still you're, you're breathing. You can put your hand above and below the mask. The air is still coming out. Oh, oh, all the viruses are getting stuck in the mask. That's what I, I mean. Look, I know people are scared. People, when you're frightened, you you just want someone to tell you it's all going to be OK. The government's not going to make it all OK. You know, th- this is this is really the separation that separation psychologically between adults and the little children of the left and some Republicans and some conservatives, or at least they call themselves conservatives in this country. Government's not going to not going to keep you safe. Not from a virus and say, oh, Buck, but what about law enforcement? You talk about that all the time. Yeah, they do the best they can. But I also tell you to take your own precautions. Right. Yeah, I want cops on the streets. I also want anybody who can uh, and wants to to be able to conceal carry. I also wish that I had, you know, I visited a friend of mine down in North Carolina. uh, What was last weekend, which is why I'm in now a weekend of my quarantine and. I just asked him in passing. He says, you know, uh, we were talking about going shooting. He was a Marine. He's a, you know, been a friend of mine for over 30 years. And he's still he's still um, uh, in the reserves. And I said, yeah, so what, what's the what's the gun? What are the gun laws here like in North Carolina? I'm assuming they're pretty friendly. He goes, yeah. I said, what do you got? He, he just starts rattling off. You know, he's got a I, I think he has a SIG. He's got an AR. He's got a shot. You know, it's like and he was almost like, yeah, you know, I really I don't have. I need to go and get a few more. Like, I, I don't really have everything I need. I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, you got a you got a, a semi-automatic rifle. You got a couple other long guns. You got a sidearm. You know, you're in business, my friend. And here in New York. Oh, yeah. I can get a, a 20 gauge double barrel if I beg and plead after six months and put a lockbox on not just the the ammunition, but a trigger guard. It's, it's crazy. But I, I do believe in taking control of your own destiny, your own life as much as possible. And Democrats don't. 
they offer you the false promise of safety, the false promise of prosperity through the hands of government. See, that's the big difference. Trump isn't saying that he's going to make everything happen for everyone. He's just saying we're going to get government out of the way and try to foster conditions that allow people to succeed. The government is not in a position to make a success out of you, although they do pay a lot of bureaucrats to do very little. But fascism? Fascism. This, this is something that they say that is now, this is now a charge that only stupid people can make against the president. There are real criticisms of Trump that can be defended against, we can disagree with, but there are real criticisms, to be sure. Saying that Trump is a fascist is for morons. Okay, he was offered, if he were a fascist, on a silver platter, the ability to suspend rights on a whim, to keep people in their homes, to shut down businesses, to give some freedoms to some people. You know, John Lewis's eighth funeral. Yeah, sit on each other's laps, snuggle, doesn't matter. We'll waive the, the D.C. quarantine for all you Democrats when you go back. You know, John Lewis needs like four or five funerals. You can't have a funeral for your family. John Lewis, he deserves like a, a million of them. Uh, or, or obviously the protesters out on the streets. That's fascism, by the way. That's authoritarianism. When you have the very strict application of capricious laws, right? So I can make you do whatever I want as, and, and, and punish you as severely as I want, and I'm not going to hold other people to the same standard. That's when you're really in a scary authoritarian state. That's what truly undermines you. Because if you look at the history of whether it's fascist uh, or Marxist regimes, communist regimes, there's always a different set of rules for the people enforcing the rules because they couldn't live under the rules that they make for you. Go and read the Gulag Archipelago and you see that the mentality of the bureaucrats who are sending people away, you know, as, as Solzhenitsyn writes about it, sending people away for 10 years to a labor camp where they'll likely die. And even if they don't, when they come back, there'll be a shadow of them for of their former selves. And their attitude was to be annoyed if the people that they were trying to send away for 10 years who didn't do anything wrong weren't more helpful in the process of getting themselves sent away for 10 years to the gulag. That's what real authoritarianism feels like. That's, and who is closer to that? Do you think the Democrats or the Republicans? Who, who takes it upon themselves to have endless power to enforce stupid rules in a capricious fashion? It's Democrats, not Republicans. Trump? Trump has been saying, let's let people, let's go back to work, let's go back to... But Democrats seized on the fear narrative. They seized on the fear narrative, and it is very powerful. It's a very powerful tool in their arsenal to get people to stop thinking rationally and just put whoever will make the biggest promises about keeping them safe and warm at night in power. But if you call Trump a fascist, you are truly a, you're truly a dumbass. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. As president, the first step I will take will be to get control of the virus that has ruined so many lives. Because I understand something this president hasn't from the beginning. We will never get our economy back on track. We will never get our kids safely back in schools. We'll never have our lives back until we deal with this virus. The tragedy of where we are today is it didn't have to be this bad. Just look around. It's not this bad in Canada or Europe or Japan or almost anywhere else in the world. And the president keeps telling us the virus is going to disappear. 
He keeps waiting for a miracle. Well, I have news for him. No miracle is coming. So the virus is going to just go away at some point. That is true. That's what epidemiology tells us. At some point, that is true. So we can stop saying that that's not true because it is true. The virus will go. We don't know when. Could be six months, could be six years, who knows. But the virus will. And and if it morphs and it becomes like the seasonal flu, well, then we'll, we'll develop better and better immunity over time to it. So it might still be dangerous, but it'll become less dangerous over time. But let's just focus in on the bigger lie here that the rest of the world has done so much better than we have. That's not true. Italy hasn't done better than we have. Great Britain hasn't done better than we have. France hasn't done better than we have. Brazil hasn't done better than we have. I mean, you look on a per capita basis. What matters is is fatalities from this. That is the single most important metric that you can see when you're talking about how you respond to a virus. How many of your people did you lose? And I'm just going to say this. Another part of this that I think people don't want to talk about, but is very true. Why does Japan have so few fatalities from this? You start to look at other countries. There is ample science and data to back this up right now. Unfortunately, not only is age a very big component of this, but body mass index, BMI, plays a major role for those who are already susceptible age-wise to having the most severe forms of the disease. It's just what we see. So America has a much higher per capita uh, BMI than many of the other countries that we're talking about. So we may have a more susceptible population. You see, disease doesn't care about equity. Disease does what it does. And we're not the same country as other countries. We don't have the same population. We don't have the same health habits. But what is it that President Trump was supposed to do that he didn't do? And while I'm telling you about BMI, I got to say, they really plan on keeping gyms locked down in cities forever because that is, I'm being serious, making people more susceptible to the disease. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of all the areas of uh, rewriting of the Obama-Biden administration's history, I, I think the one that is the most galling, other than many, uh, that's a tough call to make, but one of the ones that's most annoying is the, the pretense that they were not a foreign policy disaster. It's a very simple exercise that you can all do. When you think about the Obama-Biden years, think of a foreign policy challenge that arose during that time, and then think about whether it was better or worse after the Obama-Biden team dealt with it. Better or worse? That's the game you play. Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Syria. Think of a country. Think of a place. Better or worse, from a U.S. interest perspective, better or worse? It's very easy, isn't it? A rolling series of disasters. Why is that surprising considering that you have Susan Rice and Samantha Power as the, you know, the, the intellectual engine room of Obama's foreign policy? That, that's, that's absurd. They're not impressive people, not people that anyone should listen to. But we did. They had a lot of power, you know. Remember Hillary? We came, we saw he died. Hee Hillary. Hee Ah, he died. What happened? I wanted her to be president, folks. That was going to be a great idea. You know, one thing that I that I always I always notice that separates the way that the Democrats feel about these politicians and everything from the way the Republicans do. 
one one big difference that I see is that Democrats don't are, are aren't willing to recognize the flaws and failings. I expect politicians, I expect whether it's Trump or anyone else to have shortcomings. That's why I'll tell you when I think there's a valid criticism of him, and I know that there are people that probably go, "Oh, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I'm going to go to some, I'm going to go to, you know, I can." Listen to some other radio host who used to call Trump an idiot on his show and now pretends that he's Mr. Super Trump, right? I, I could do that, but I, I want to tell you the truth always. And there are some areas, that, of course, the president's imperfect, right? That doesn't, that shouldn't grate on anyone's sensibilities. That shouldn't be. But I think he's overall been an incredibly effective both messenger and advocate for conservative policies. And he has saved us from four years of Hillary, which I am thankful for that. And I think, you know, the President Trump at this point, you know, I give him probably an A minus. It was good. It wasn't perfect. It was really solid, though. I mean, I really, you know, if you look in retrospect, I think President Bush, at least through the second term, you know, it was more like a C plus. So I think Trump has done a very, a very sound job. But Democrats are unwilling to to speak honestly about the shortcomings of the politicians they like, you know, if, look, if they like if they stylistically and she's yeah, she's very telegenic and there's all this appeal for AOC, but they should be like, look, it's obviously somebody who's kind of an, kind of an ignoramus, not obviously not much of a student, not particularly bright, but really found her niche and running with it and has a lot of power in the Democrat Party now trying to make the country socialist. But, but they should but they won't admit that to you, that they won't say that. You know, you notice that Republicans also we, we we will really go after some of our own. I mean, I, I think Marco Rubio increasingly has shown himself to be very disappointed as a leader. Very disappointed uh, to the point where maybe this guy needs to get primary. Just going to put that out there. And there are others, too, where, you know, we, we on our own side will say this person, they've really failed. Uh, they've really failed the team. I just don't think you hear that from Democrats. And you certainly won't hear them be honest about the you know when a republican speaks about trump they'll say yeah i mean sometimes a little rough around the edges and you know, i get it you know he's a little bit of a he can do a little bit of bsing sometimes or whatever but you know i love the policies i think he's a fighter and i'm with him. when democrats speak about politicians they'll be like obama is literally god no like literally like he is god and I'm like well you know some of the stuff he did didn't really work out so well and I know if you hear him speaking off the cuff, not off the prompter, it's pretty whatever, you know. <gasps> How could you say that about somebody who is literally like God? Oh, my God. So I, I think this is and this is a political cultural difference between the two sides. I don't expect politicians to be great. Yeah. And Ted Cruz, even I, I think Ted Cruz, he's obviously a very smart guy. I, I, I think Ted Cruz and I are aligned politically. 95 maybe 99 percent of the time you know but you grow a beard and he throws some more jokes out there now and he's working on a part of him that was a little bit deficient before where he seemed a little bit like kind of like a pompous pompous jerk sometimes even to his own side a little a little, a little arrogant right and that's why he even said i i not somebody you necessarily want the first person you want to have a beer with i think ted realized well actually he could be the guy that people want to have a beer with and he's kind of you know he's loosened things up a little bit you know grew a beard you know, felt like put a little a little hair on his face, a little more hair on his chest. And now he's kind of like, yeah, bring it. You know, it's a, so obviously we're all constantly those of us who are being who, are, who approach ourselves with with honesty. We're all works in progress. We're all doing things. But Democrats, 
it's a cult. And that's what I'm really trying to get to. It's always about the elevation of these people to a status that an exalted status that they don't really deserve. And now we're seeing that with Joe Biden. And I'm just I'm just like, you guys have got to be kidding. You agreed until five minutes ago that he was like not impressive at all. And now it's always oh, the best speech of his life. Oh, my God. His speech was amazing. He's fantastic. Oh, you know what we really need? The, 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 the woman from Seinfeld to tell us what's going on. Play three. Joe Biden shares John Lewis's belief that every vote matters. Personally, I plan to follow the example of six current cabinet members, Vice President Poonce and President Trump himself, and vote by mail. To find out everything you need to know about mail-in ballots, your polling place, or even just am I registered, text VOTE to 30330. 30330. That would be the president's golf score if he didn't cheat. Okay, look, I'll admit that was a little nasty, but we all know he's a cheater. And I'm proud to be a nasty, nasty woman. Mission accomplished. <laughs> she, she got that one done. That's for sure. Yeah. Producer Mark, do you, do you, is, Seinfeld, is Seinfeld off the list, or is it still such a classic that you will watch it? Yeah, and Seinfeld's this? never coming off my list. Sorry. Never coming off the list? Okay. Fair enough. It is pretty funny. I will give that. I've actually heard Veep is pretty funny, too, but... I have as well. Never got around to watching it. Never got, never got around to it yet. But let's talk about vote by mail, shall we? Because the whole Trump is trying to steal the election with his postmaster general conspiracy has been a lost in the mail in the last day, my friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. As we head into the election season... I want to assure this committee and the American public that the Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's election mail securely and on time. This sacred duty is my number one priority between now and Election Day. Does anyone really doubt this man at this point? If you do, it's because you've been listening to the Democrat propaganda around all this. But the USPS Postmaster General DeJoy testified before the Senate. Um, and this, I'm sure, will not do anything to quiet the most wild-eyed conspiracy theorists about this who really believe that this was some nefarious plot to, to steal the election. R- keep in mind that if you get rid of the postal uh, post office boxes and you do all these things they claim is at the heart of the conspiracy, you'd be hurting uh, everybody who votes, right? <laughs> so, yes, I know there's a belief that universal mail-in ballots would, de- would benefit Democrats, but we don't even really know. We don't really know. But there is a, there is a more central belief for Democrats that uh, if more people only voted, they would win. Like, they, they never actually lose. It's never that their ideas are bad and don't make sense and that they're a bunch of crybabies. That's never what the actual end result is. It's, o- it's always something else. Um, so DeJoy testifies before the Senate and... Here's here's what he has to say about the theories out there that this is all meant to uh, be some plot to steal the election. Play 20. Prior to implementing the changes, did you discuss these changes or their impact on the election with any Trump campaign officials? No, no, sir. These changes, sir, these changes and our total analysis here and going forward and 
And remember, I'm one new person in the organization with this, with, with the whole structure around me, an operating structure, an executive team around me that are involved in these decisions. Okay, and uh, we the, the having any moving forward, trying to have any negative impact on the on the election is an outrageous claim. You know, since the postmaster DeJoy took over, the United States Postal Service has spent seven hundred million dollars on overtime, a rate that has not changed. Where where are, where are these nefarious changes happening? Um, where are these nefarious changes? We don't see them. They don't happen. This is all hysteria, friends. DeJoy has told the Senate that the USPS has the money, the manpower, the resources necessary so that it can provide all of the support during the election uh, that it has to. In fact, USPS, I see here from Josh Hawley, very smart fellow, rising star in the GOP, has more cash on hand now than it has ever in its history. It's got almost $15 billion cash on hand. So... Let, let's be very honest about what's, what's happening here. This is a narrative about election theft that is false, but is meant to undermine, in advance of the election, the opponent's possible victory. That's all this really is. And that's why you have, since, uh, that's why you have 20 states, Democrat blue states, suing the USPS over this already. Postal Service has faced... $78 billion that it has lost uh, since 2007. And DeJoy's changes to it are meant to preserve the post office. But see, this is wh- whether it's about General Motors or anything else. Democrats don't understand a failing business model has to be fixed. And the way to fix a failing business model is not to continue to spend more than you make. There would have to be changes here. Uh, there would have to be things that get cut, things that are shifted around. And the the allegation that there is sabotage from the post office is simply not supported by the facts. Louis DeJoy also told the Senate uh, Senate committee that he was extremely highly confident that even mail-in ballots sent close to Election Day would be delivered on time. All right. So he, he is not worried about that. Uh, So states that have already made provisions, if your state allows you to do a mail-in ballot, I know there are states, some states that do that, nothing is going to change, your your ballots will get through, and everything's fine. But it doesn't really matter, right? We know this. It doesn't matter that he's addressing these concerns. It doesn't matter if, in fact, every single ballot is delivered on time, as presented, as asked, because the problem, ultimately, is the possibility of Donald Trump winning. That's the real problem. Um, The real problem is that the Democrats recognize that they're trying to pull off what would seem to a normal person to be impossible, which is convincing the American people that Joe Biden is a fantastic candidate for president of the United States. And he's up against this. A president who has done a good job for four years is in the midst of a very big challenge. Play Clip 20. You just played that one. Play uh, clip 19. In a second term in office, we will create 10 million jobs in the next year. 
We will hire more police. We will ban sanctuary cities. We will appoint prosecutors, judges and justices who believe in the rule of law, not the rule of that horrible mob that you get to watch on television. We will provide school choice in every home. We're going we're gonna to let you have school choice. That's a very important thing. The Democrats don't want anything to do with school choice. We will lower the price of prescription drugs, as I said. We will build and expand our energy infrastructure to a level that is even greater than what we have right now. And when I said before we're number one, we're number one by a lot. Nobody thought we'd ever be number one. And we are energy independent, which is very nice. And as we've been doing, we will end our reliance on China and other countries for drugs and other things. Those all sound like good things to me. When I listen to the Democrats talk, it's a lot of we're going to do good things. And I say, but how? Well, how are you going to achieve that? Trump is, is talking about things that he's already been doing with a booming economy. He's already been doing with bringing down prescription drug prices. Oh, but we are we are in the world of funhouse mirrors, friends, that what we're seeing from the Democrats is, is not reality. Um, I just want to say be prepared for this to get really contentious very quickly. This is from the uh, New York Post. Lawyer for Minneapolis cop says George Floyd killed himself. Let me take a step back for a moment because this is uh, politically fissile stuff. This is uh, this could result in a whole new wave of looting and rioting. Uh, They overcharged. Let's be clear. They overcharged Chauvin. To make a point because of the politics, they overcharged him. Now, I'm not saying that he's not guilty of involuntary manslaughter. He may be. But to say that he's guilty of murder, too, effectively, uh, that's that's just them trying to make a political point. There's no way this guy was there's no way that when you see the video of him dealing with Floyd before this, there was a point in which he decided, yeah, I'm just going to kill this guy because I'm a racist. That's not what happened. Um. He may have had a depraved indifference uh, when he had his knee on the neck. But, you know, now we're being told. And the initial coroner's coroner's report, which did not get a lot of it. The initial coroner's report said heart failure. Heart failure did not say asphyxiation. Then they had the family do their own report. And that's it. Of course, that was going to say asphyxiation. And there's millions of millions of dollars on the line, too. They're obviously going to sue the city. It's going to be a huge check. So. Let's all really understand what what the stakes are here. But let's also be clear that the original BLM story of Mike Brown that was told to us was a lie. So the BLM movement was founded on a lie. Hands up, don't shoot. That was a lie. It's not true. No one can make it true. It's a lie. Did George Floyd die of a heart attack because he had opioids in his system three times the amount necessary to kill a human being? And is that why he was saying he couldn't breathe even as he was walking in open air with no pressure on him anywhere for 10 minutes before the knee was on his neck? The answers to those questions are going to have big ramifications. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is anti-racism? And why is it becoming something that we have to talk about all the time now? How did anti-racism go from a phrase that didn't even exist to something that we are all expected 
to just, I don't know, we're, we're, all, we're all expected to obey. We're expected to do what anti-racism dictates for all of us. Politico has published an op-ed that's getting a lot of attention right now, and it is by a man named Ibrahim uh, Kendi. And here's what he writes. And he is, in some ways, considered a founder of this idea of anti-racism, which I'll explain. But th- this is where this movement now has gone. To fix the, quote, to fix the original sin of racism, Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy, and the different racial groups are equals. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold, hmm. as well as racist ideas by public officials, with racist ideas and public officials clearly defined. Hmm. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, comprised of formerly trained experts on racism and no political appointees. The Department of Racism would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA, the Department of Anti-Racism, would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. This is catching on. I know you might say, but come on, what is it? No, no, this is becoming a big thing now. The Democrats are ascendant with the BLM movement and with uh, the absolute panic and fear that you see from anyone uh, who, who might even stand up and be willing to speak just a little bit about how they're uncomfortable with some aspects of this movement or what does this movement really stand for or why would anyone think that this is a good idea? Not allowed to say that. Corporate America, good year even. Although they've backed off it now. No, they said Blue Lives Matter is okay. MAGA is still not okay, but Blue Lives Matter is okay. All right. Friends, here's what anti-racism is. It would be the creation of a racial entitlement state with a, a revolutionary guard of sorts, some, something similar to what you would have in the communist, uh, in, in communist countries where there's a revolutionary party that sits atop the actual communist party. There's a revolutionary committee, a central committee, that makes the determinations about what goes and what doesn't, and that are above the rest of the law. So it doesn't matter, for example, what the Soviet Constitution says, because you have a revolutionary committee above it that will decipher for you what the real meaning of that constitution is. They are a super legislature above any accountability to the people whatsoever. They are the alpha and the omega. They become everything. This is a movement that seeks to create something along those lines for racial equity purposes. Now, let's just start with some very basic principles here. Human beings are not defined by uh, their race in any meaningful or moral way. Race is a, a superficial characteristic along the lines of hair color, along the lines of eye color. These are things that do not matter to one's worth or ability as a human being at all. 
So then why within society are we uh, trying to empower people who would treat us very differently based upon skin color? Why do we think we're going to, to tackle the problem of racism by acting in explicitly racially conscious ways, racist ways? Same thing. They can try to dance around this, but it's the same thing. Well, because ultimately this is really all about power. Anti-racism is now a secular religion in America. It's a belief system that insists that you do what the anti-racists want or else you are a part of the problem of racism. So what it does is eliminate neutrality in the identity politics conflicts. What it does is eliminate your ability to just be a good person who treats people well and is not a racist. That's insufficient. Because your very existence, your white skin, according to anti-racist belief, is evidence of your guilt in the white privilege system. So you, as a white person now, under anti-racism, have white guilt and, in fact, are guilty of being a part of the white privilege and white supremacy system in this country. So he says we need to create, through a constitutional amendment, a government body that would end racial inequity. And to this, I would say, well, is it only going to be against or, or, or is it only going to be against white people? Are, are we to say if we created, let's say this, this, uh, uh, what is it? The Bureau of, of Non-Racism or Anti-Racism, whatever it's called, Department of Anti-Racism, the DOA. Um, DOA and police work means something else or DOA can sometimes mean something on uh in legislative sense, too, right? Dead on arrival. But if we were to create the DOA, and this idea, I think, is DOA, but nonetheless, if we were to create one, what would it do about the disparities between um, Asian households and white households when it comes to uh, income? I, I, just, I would want to know. Let, let's put aside the more, uh, the more sensitive areas of racial discourse in America for the, for the, for the moment. Would the Department of Anti-Racism try to uh, either pull down or push up white average household income so that it could catch up to its Asian counterparts because Asians have a substantially higher household income? Would it ever try to address how we have a system of alleged white supremacy in this country that that has somehow managed to put a, a non-white ethnic category in the top socioeconomic status in the country? On a on a household to household basis, it, w it would not deal with those things, right? No, no, no. This would become the Department of White Guilt and Liberal Dominance very quickly. That would be the that would be the point of it. The 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 threshold questions for what's too much inequity in society. Well, who would who would get to make that distinction? How do we get to see the the question? Uh, how do we get to see that issue? Right? Wh who's going to be empowered to do that? Oh, it'll be a bunch of Diversity educators on steroids, so to speak. This will be far beyond anything you've already seen. Why is this so effective? Why is this so effective? Because as I was discussing at the beginning of the show, envy is powerful politics. It's, it pollutes, it undermines, it divides, but envy is very powerful. We all want more than we have. We all want things that we don't have and that other people do. And it's always more psychologically comforting to believe that there is some injustice that has led to the lack of those things in one's own life. Now, put aside from whether 
it is even a question of some injustice from within the system. What's the best way to deal with those injustices? What's the best way to make people freer, happier, healthier, more prosperous? Is it to put the government in control of more of their lives or less? In fact, the racial inequality of the past was government enforced. And yet now we're told that to deal with racial inequity today, the government will be in the position to determine how to balance this out through the Department of Anti-Racism. This is absolutely toxic. But it is a widespread belief now in, in the elite liberal circles in academia, media, Hollywood. And it also means that you're no longer able to just not be racist and feel okay about yourself. It, it enjoins you. It effectively conscripts you for the cause of left-wing identity politics, social justice, and the creation of a racial entitlement state. We will give to some people. The state will give to some people on the basis of race and take from other people on the basis of race. That's what the, that whether you're talking about reparations or that's what the, the point of all this is. It also eliminates individual culpability, individual uh, achievement. It treats us all as a collective. And then the power structure shifts based upon whoever sits atop it and determines who within that collective should be elevated and who should be suppressed. But this is government intervention that will only bring about more government intervention. It does not actually fix anything. You put your hand on the scale on one side, and then you feel the need to put your hand on the scale at the other, and then, the, and then so on and so forth. It keeps going. The only real way to eliminate discrimination within our society is to eliminate discrimination within our society. To stop this obsession with constantly holding people either to blame or blameless on the basis of their skin color, which is what's happening right now with white privilege. White privilege is the elevation of an idea that white people all haven't earned at some level. They won't tell you how much haven't earned what they have, have not achieved what they have achieved. There has been some invisible hand pushing them forward that holds others back. I don't believe that's true. But beyond that, I know the government can't fix that because they never talk about what it is the government is doing to make that happen. Right? And they also never look at the root causes for the iniquities that exist within society, cultural, social, socioeconomic, structural issues that exist that are uncomfortable to talk about, like family units, like stability of a husband and wife married together. That's never discussed. No, instead, you're offered being an anti-racist or you're a racist. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We've been talking a bit about foreign policy today on the show. Let's get another voice in on the action here. A senior policy analyst from the Jewish Institute for the National Security of America, JINSA. Ariel Davidson joins us now. Ariel, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, Buck. All right. Big thing first here is the deal with the UAE. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of days, the DNC from Obama, from Biden and Obama about their foreign policy. I don't remember them ever getting a deal involving Israel and the UAE that pretty much everybody paying attention said was a big step forward. What can you tell us about this? It's a huge step forward. And I actually think it's going to sort of revolutionize the Middle East as we know it. 
I think we're going to start to see a lot of Arab nations take hints from the UAE-Israel deal. I'm thinking Bahrain, uh, I'm thinking Oman, I'm thinking possibly Saudi Arabia, potentially down the road. Uh, I think this has this speaks to the fact that Donald Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East has been quite strong. And I actually would think that he might even be a contender for the Nobel Peace Prize. And I don't even say that jokingly. We know, of course, that there's a ton of you know partisan hackery potentially involved with that selection. And so it's unlikely that he would get it. But I do think that he's, he would rightly deserve it. Uh, and it, again, it speaks to the fact that you know I think Arab nations as a whole right now are extremely frustrated with the Palestinians. And I think they realize that uh, the greatest impediment to peace between Israel and the Palestinians is not Israel, it's the Palestinians. And so we're going to start to see, I think, a lot more normalization take place between Arab nations and Israel. Now, we've also heard a lot in the last few days from the Democrats about the need to get back into the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Where are we now with the Trump administration on Iran policy specifically? Well, as of right now, so Pompeo recently made the announcement, um, or actually Trump made the announcement that Pompeo is going to, to uh, try to snap back sanctions against Iran. So essentially, prior to the JCPOA, there was a very rigorous sanction regime put in place against Iran. It consisted of six different UN Security Council resolutions. This snapback is essentially saying we're done with the JCPOA. We want to snap back into place all those prior sanctions. And the condition to do that is basically a non-performance on the part of Iran, which Iran has been flouting its non-performance for quite some time now. Uh, so we definitely have the legal basis to do it. There's definitely going to be some arguments that take place as to whether this snapback invocation is valid. But, Buck, it's really important to remember that when the Obama administration tried to drag the Iran deal over the finish line, one of their biggest selling points was, hey, don't worry, we can always snap back sanctions if we're not happy with how Iran's performing. Problem is, they never envisioned the other party in power, and they never envisioned the other party in power that might actually invoke snapback sanctions. So I think it just speaks to the fact that there was a lot of poor planning on the part of those within the Iran deal echo chamber who tried to sell this deal with these, the snapback provision, and now they're upset that the Trump administration is going to use it. it. It's really quite ironic and very silly. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo pointed something out, and that is that during all the speeches, we've heard almost nothing during this DNC week about China. Producer Mark, play clip 21. You know, I've been terribly surprised that the Democrats haven't talked about foreign policy enough with no mentions of China. The single greatest challenge to the United States over the next years, the single greatest threat to the United States comes from the Chinese Communist Party. Donald Trump called it early. He talked about it during his campaign in 2015 and again in 2016. And now for uh, three and a half years, we've imposed cost on China in a way that has protected the American people from this threat. And when they uh, refuse to acknowledge the uh, Wuhan virus, when they said, uh, we're going to cover this up. We're going to allow people to travel across the world in spite of the fact that we know it presents a threat. President Trump is aiming to hold them accountable for the enormous loss of life all across the world and the trillions of dollars in economic harm that the Chinese Communist Party allowed to permeate all throughout the world. What do we know about what the Democrats are planning for China? we, We didn't hear much about it this week, but do we have some sense of what would change? I mean, their messaging has been really strange when it comes to not just China, but also Iran. I mean, they haven't really given us any hint whatsoever what their plan is beyond potentially re-entering another Iran deal. We have no idea what that deal might look like. 
Uh, we have no idea kind of how the Biden camp is positioning itself vis-a-vis China or Iran. Uh, I think it also speaks to the fact that they just don't really have a coherent foreign policy vision in place. And I just think it speaks to the fact that Obama's foreign policy was so abysmal. And so if Biden tries to ride on the tails of that or try to do, you know, Obama 2.0 in the Middle East or Obama 2.0 when it comes to China, it's going to, you know, the Trump campaign is going to hit them hard on that because in both fronts that they were a complete failure. Uh, and I think at least when it comes to China, I think that is our biggest threat right now. Uh, and I think that Trump's administration has been very cognizant of that. And I supremely applaud uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for being so clear headed about it. Do you remember, Buck, like a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about TikTok? I can't tell you how many articles I came across that were from these left wing journalists who were like, TikTok is not that big of a threat. We shouldn't be worried about it. The Trump administration just wants to go after young American children. I was thinking, my goodness, the short sightedness of those who are in our national security reporting community is absolutely tragic. Right, well, uh, so I think one of the things that the Trump... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, that you, you go ahead, it's fine. Oh, no, I was just going to add that the Trump administration, if they were smart about this moving forward, they would really position themselves as, you know, they would really position the Trump administration as an administration that would go after our adversaries in a way that Biden just seems, you know, hasn't really put together any sort of plan of attack. Um, and so, you know, if that means we have to be hardlined, we have to be hardlined. Ariel Davidson, everybody, go uh, read her latest over at the Jewish Institute for the National Security of America, where she's a senior policy analyst, and follow her on Twitter. Ariel, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Roll call, everybody. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And, you know, maybe one day we'll just put producer Mark's personal phone number up there in case you guys, you know, just want to send him a little text to wish him a good night's sleep or something. Because he feels like he hasn't heard from enough of you. That sounds like a really good way to get me to find a new job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm hoping that they don't start looking for like, uh, you know, hockey play-by-play announcers or something. That I'll be in trouble. I, I'm what not would, at that be, level. Let me, I'll ask you this legitimately. What it would be the dream sports commentary job? Like, what's oh. the best? Like, for me personally? Yeah, like on any show, if you were doing sports stuff only, any show, is it play-by-play? Is it your own ESPN? Is it, you know, what, what's, the, what's the height? It's you either... Know, yeah, what's that HBO sports thing? Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, real sports, it's not that. Yeah. Uh, I want to preface this by saying none of this will ever happen. Um, but hockey play-by-play would be my number one. Or uh, maybe the morning show at WFAN hosting that. Ooh. Who's the who's the best hockey play announcer? Oh, Doc Emmerich by far. Wow, I just learned I never even heard of this guy. It's a cool name though. He's the best ever. Okay, well, there we go. All right, good to know. I, I'm still gonna when when the world stops ending, I'm gonna take Bruce Marker hockey game. We're gonna come back and do a whole post wrap analysis of it. But in my diff, unlike the Malta podcast, which is just on me now, and like every night I go to sleep thinking, "Damn it, Buck," uh, but it's gonna happen. 
But uh, sure. the the hockey thing was not my fault because the world ended and um, there was no more hockey. But we will we will take yeah. producer Mark to his basically team. as soon as you committed to going going to a hockey game, we're not allowed to go see sports anymore. Thanks, Buck. Yes, I know. Coincidence, perhaps. Uh, let's get to the inbox here, Marina. Producer Mark, when speaking of gumbo, you must remember the vast majority who make gumbo are Cajun, and Cajuns will eat anything. This isn't criticism. They are rather proud of their ability to live off the land or even the sewer to find meat for their gumbo. Therefore, a porcupine and a frog are good eaten. Hmm. I did not know that. To each what their is, own. I don't, need, yeah, I don't even know the difference between jumbo and uh, jumbo, gosh, g- gumbo and jambalaya. Isn't Aren't they kind of similar? They're rice in jambalaya, but there isn't in gumbo. I really don't know. Hmm. Cajun, I guarantee. I, you know, it'd be like, I have a great I, Cajun accent is cool. I, I hear it very, I've heard it rarely in my life, but I have heard it a few times. And, you know, it's definitely, uh, definitely an unusual one. So, yeah. The only I guess reason my Cajun sounds like Quebecois, it's kind of, which is, does, which is not correct. So, a lot of your accents sound similar, but it's because yeah, no, Elizabeth Warren with the porcupines and the frogs. That's the only reason we're talking about this. Oh, she, one of your she, impressions. She, she, she makes the best, the best gumbo, just like, just like the Native American gumbo she used to make. Because the Native Americans also made gumbo, believe it or not. Oh, it is just rice. Producer Nick says that. Producer Mark, I'm impressed. Well, you knew I the don't know rice. why I knew that. That was really, that was really like, that's like your, uh, your secret architectural expertise that you pulled out that one time. It's just one of those random things I know, but I had no idea I knew yeah. it. That's a... Uh... What's what's on the what's on the menu this week? Anything exciting on the menu this weekend? I we don't figure that out until my wife gets home on Friday night. Eh, fair enough. All right, back into it here. But I, I would I would love some jumbo. It's, uh, God, I keep saying jumbo, jumbo, gumbo, or jumbo jambalaya. I keep confusing them in my head. Are there no good Cajun places in Manhattan? I'm sure there's got to be one. Uh, you know there is a Johnny Utah's, a bar not too far from where I live, based on the character from Point Break. It's like a surfer bar. I've heard of that bar. Yeah, I'll take I'll take you and producer Nick there sometime when when the again when the world opens up. Brian Buck and Mark. From what I see, President Trump is the first president in forty years who has not prescribed to interventionism with new active wars. Heck, they chastise him when he tries to get us out of Afghanistan. Seems to me this election is between the neocons versus the isolationist, liberty-minded pacifists. Most of my Democratic family and friends would be surprised to know that they're on the side of the industrial war machine. This is a strong point to remind the libs um, of come November 3rd. Thoughts? Yeah, I think that the president, look, one of the great mistakes of the Republican Party of the last 20 years was the uh, the neocon interventionism and. Uh, I think a lot of us learned a lesson about that, uh, especially anybody who spent time in those war zones, particularly if you spent time in uniform and combat in those war zones. I think that the uh, at the end of the day, there was a real sense that our leadership put us on this pathway without really thinking through exactly what the long term consequences of all this were going to be. And, yeah, I I no longer I mean, I'll tell you this, if if the, the. Government, if I were serving, which I I have not been in the military, but if I were called up to serve and they told me, "Okay, we're going to deploy you to some foreign country and the mission is to make them have nice, free, fair elections and to remake the country. The answer is a flat no. It's a flat no. 
It's not what we have. It's not what we're, our military should be doing. It's the wrong strategy. We shouldn't be putting our men and women in uniform in a position where they have to do that, where they are asked to do that as part of the mission. That's that should not be the mission. Ricky. Oh, and, and I, oh, before I get to Ricky, uh, Trump has avoided that so far. And, and I think he deserves a tremendous amount of credit for it. Trump, because of what the polls say or because he doesn't want to look weak like Obama did. So Obama made decisions about war and peace. I actually had libs. I'll tell you, I had lib analysts at CNN when I was over there. Some of their national security analysts would would agree with me. Some of the smarter ones, one or two of them. Bob Baer, who like me was ex-CIA, who is smart, unlike a lot of the other CNN. I mean, he's a liberal, but he is smart. He's not a dumbass uh, like a lot of the other national security analysts, especially the more the more recent ones they have over there are horrible. But you don't know who they are because who watches CNN? Uh, but he agreed with me once when I was on air and I just said, you know, Obama is surging troops in Afghanistan so that he looks because Afghanistan is the good war and Iraq is the bad war. And so he wants to look like he's different than Bush and he's tough. You shouldn't send people into harm's way over that. You shouldn't send people to a place where some of them are going to die. And that happened. We lost more Marines in Helmand and Kandahar, we lost more soldiers in combat under Obama than we did under Bush in Afghanistan by far. Do you ever does that does that ever seep into people's minds over there? No, because the media didn't cover it because they're disgusting frauds. Ricky. Hey, Buck, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky podcast listener. All right, Kentucky. At the end of your show, you were talking about terms. The term limit who takes uh, term limit for a president who takes office midterm is 10 years. So if Creepy Joe held on for two years and one day, she could run for two more terms. So scary. Shields high, Ricky. Uh, Ricky, if that's true, that's a really cool fact. I did not know that. I looked it up. It is, in fact, true. It is true. Well, that would be an important thing to know. So, Ricky, great. Ricky just added some spice in in our gumbo. I guarantee. Right? That was French. You did French. <laughs> I do the Cajun. I'm like, les poissons, les poissons. He, he, he. Oh. You're just offending people. <laughs> Our Cajun listeners know I love them. That doesn't I mean they're going to be happy with you with that ridiculous accent. I mean, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> they'll just send, they'll just call into the voicemail so I get better at the accent. <laughs> That's what will happen. Nobody's listening to that. Yeah. So, Eric, next up here, I have an idea for a T-shirt for producer Mark. You think I've got you think you've got it rough. I work with Fat Thor. <laughs> Eric, funny <laughs> at my expense. You got a guffaw for producer Mark. So, you know, you like that one. Um, but, yep, yep, yep. Thor is definitely I, trademarked. Otherwise, that would already be on a T-shirt. Oh, yeah. No, I, I could I could go for that. Zach. Hey, Buck. I just want to say I love the show. I have a 40-minute drive to work every day, so listening really makes the time go by quick. I have a question tonight. I saw you on Tucker Carlson. Notice your hair looked much more sprayed than what it does when I watch you on the first YouTube channel. Is this an accurate observation? Anyway, keep up the amazing work. Shields high. Um, I mean, usually for the, for the first, uh, first of all, Zach, thank you for listening, and I'm so glad that we get to hang out with you during your commute, and I really appreciate that we're a part of, of your day-to-day, and welcome Great to have you on the team. Uh, as for as for the helmet, aka the hair, I uh, usually before I go on Fox because I don't want um, I get all animated and it can be kind of hot in the studio or the. So fun fact: they actually send you now a a van, a mobile studio. So it's like, Buck, do you want to do your shot from a van down by the river? 
pretty much. I get into like this shady van that looks a little bit like a van that would be, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say it looks like a meth lab, but I mean, it definitely looks like stuff could be going on in there because it's kind of a big, it's one of those, is it a conversion van they call it when it's a sort of a big van? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know, it's like, it's like bigger than a normal van, but it's like a, a super van. Where do you park that in Manhattan? The streets are empty. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, there's, no, there's nobody out there right now. So it's easy. So yeah, they just pull up to your house and you go inside and it's like a man with a van. You, uh, you just go Wait in there. Wait a minute, so a this. van pulls up in front of your apartment and you just get into the van? Yes. That sounds I'm like wearing, the I'm creepiest thing. I'm wearing a suit top thing. and pajama pants and flip-flops. And the people in my building who see this are definitely like, what? Like, who, and I go who in there for guy? 10 minutes and I come out a little bit sweaty and they're like, what's going on in there? I'm just saying. I'm That's just saying. the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> It's true. It's, it's true. I, co- I come out, you know, I'm a little, a little sweaty. My hair is a little ruffled up. And I'm like, whoo, another session in the van. <laughs> I'm just telling you. It's true. Can't you just walk to the studio? No, it's locked. You can't. It's oh, not you're not allowed, allowed in. Yeah. COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, otherwise I, otherwise I totally would. Yeah, no, I, that, that was the whole. People are like, why do you live in Midtown? I'm like, so I can get to our radio studio and I can get to our, our, our Fox uh, hits. And now it's like both of those things don't even matter. So. Clearly. So you go, go into a van and get sweaty. So I go into a van and get a little sweaty with a man with a van. Zach. Oh, no. Zach was just now. Catherine. Catherine with a Y. I will tell you, fun fact. I have in my life had three girlfriends, all named Catherine, all spelled with a Y. That's not all the girlfriends I've ever had. But stretching back to high school, I've dated three girls named Catherine with a Y. I don't know. What are they all blondes. I don't know. It's it's like I don't, I'm not saying I have a type, but I'm just saying that that I think you have Snow a type. Princess is blonde, but her name is not Catherine. So yeah, it's Snow Princess. Yeah, it's Snow Princess. Is that on her birth certificate, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, totally. No, there's just like a like a snowflake and then a little princess emoji. Of course, that's all that they need. They're it's like, not ah. that you know. One day somebody's going to actually name their child something like that. Two emojis. Oh, what if you just named your kid emoji? Oh, that's got to be a real name. Already. Oh, I'm sure someone's already done that. Of course. Yeah. I mean, if, if celebrities can name their kids Apple and... Um, why, why do you have uh, to go off my go after my boy Chris Martin like that? Isn't... Yeah, I know you love Coldplay. Isn't uh, Ivy Blue Jay-Z's kid's Blue name? Ivy. Blue Ivy. Blue Ivy, yeah. See, the, only one I, the, the only one I chuckled at was... culture reference. Kim and I Kanye's baby, uh, baby North. I, I actually found that funny. Northwest. Is that true? Yeah. No. Yeah, no, they have a baby named Northwest. No, come on. I'm not screwing with you. No way. This is, you're just big, silly man. I'm not. Ah, we'll Google it. This one. Catherine, not my girlfriend. What a great interview with VP Pence. You're doing an amazing job. Kudos to you and producer Mark. Catherine, thank you so much for the very kind note. Look, it was a, it was a great chat with uh, Vice President Pence, and um, I'm so glad that uh, you appreciated it. So thank you for writing in on it. We uh, we thank you, Richard Buck. What the what the hell is Build Back Better? It sounds like something from an elementary school kid. It is either bad grammar or sounds like something from a local car ad. Tell me what you think about this. Since Bush the Elder, and maybe further back, every time the next in line candidate runs, they have lost. So Dole was next in line during Clinton. Dole lost. Gore was the VP after Clinton. He lost. Then Kerry was next. He got swift-boated. 
McCain was the GOB Huckleberry. He lost. Mitt Romney was the next heir apparent. He lost. And Hillary was owed for Clinton's cheating on her, and she lost. Creepy Joe now follows Obama, and now I really hope he loses. Shields lift higher. Uh, let me see. Every time the next in-line candidate wins the... Uh, I don't, I, I'd have to kind of look at your whole line of analysis here, Richard, but you're a smart man, and I appreciate you writing in. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Roll call, a little more to finish up for this week before we send you off to have a fantastic weekend. Uh, Andre, howdy, Buck, howdy, Mark. In your Kamala and Obama lecture segment, you highlighted a longstanding difference between conservatives and libs, or if I have come to know these groups, patriots and nuts. As I was saying, the difference is that conservatives think and Democrats feel. Buck and Mark, thank you for the great program. Andre, thank you for the succinct analysis of uh, one of our segments from the show yesterday. We appreciate it. And yes, it is true. Conservatism at least strives to be about emotions and truth and knowledge and wisdom. I'm not saying it always is. I'm not saying it's perfect, but that's what it strives. Democrats are about what feels, what the emotions are, what the uh, what, what the. I can't even think of a better way of saying it. What feels good. So that's what they're all about. Julian. Hey, Buck, you were talking about nepotism and how it's something Trump does that you don't agree with. Well, I don't agree with it either. I can have some patience or understanding with wanting people he can trust around him. Think about all the advisors and deep state morons, Democrat and Republican, he's had around him that end up burning him at some point. I think nepotism would be more of a problem if he were to appoint a family member to the Supreme Court or something like that. Love the show. Shields high, brother. Julian, yeah, we can certainly discuss uh, and have opinions on the degree of nepotism and the special circumstances of it. I'm just saying nepotism is bad. And, you know, we, we, we can't say it's bad until unless Trump does it. Then we start to sound like liberals. Right. But it, this it could obviously be worse. He's not appointing uh, Jared Kushner to be secretary of defense. Right. I mean, there are some things that I think would be even he has them just around him as advisors. But nepotism is bad. Uh, Simon writes, hey, Buck, Shields High from North Carolina. I'm a new subscriber. I love the show so far. Really appreciate your high praise of my home state. Aside from some occasional mask wearers, you can walk the streets here and not even know you're in a pandemic, which is quite refreshing. I have two questions. Since Democrats insist that Trump was not a duly elected president in 2016, shouldn't he be allowed to run again in 2024? In fact, he should keep running and winning until the libs admit he's legit and suck it up for eight years. Number one, I I like your thought process, but the answer is no, that's not going to happen. Number two. Did you try the BBQ down here? Simon, because you're a new listener, I'm just going to say welcome to the team. And I will plead the fifth on having vinegar based sauce on my barbecue versus more of the Memphis or Dallas style barbecue that I'm used to. I will plead the fifth because I love my North Carolina team buck so much. And North, and, uh, and Texas team buck is right now just looking at us all like, mm hmm. Have a great weekend, everybody. Shields high.